The line between pioneer and idiot is a very thin line. So for the longest time, we were like idiots that people had no idea what we were doing. When we were investing to do our plant-based protein, meat replacement, I mean, people were like, like David, I mean, what, what are you doing? Why are you investing or, you know, putting money in something like this? It makes no sense and there's no precedence. So I guess you can say that we see things before they actually unfold. Described as the fake pork titan of Asia, David Jung is on a mission to disrupt the way we eat. David is the founder and CEO of Green Monday Group, a multifaceted social venture with the aim of taking on the world's most pressing crisis of climate change, food insecurity, and public health. David is championing the Green Monday movement, which is about replacing meat, eggs, and milk with plant-based food at least one day a week. With accolades like Social Entrepreneur of the Year from the World Economic Forum, Company of the Year by Peter Asia, and a recognition from Fortune's Change the World list, the future certainly looks bright green for David as he continues to champion the plant-based movement globally. We are sure that this chat with David will leave you with much food for thought. Enjoy! Hi, this is Janice. And I'm Sarah N. And we're your hosts for Explore This, a podcast for the modern-day working professional. Each week, we explore actionable insights on how you can thrive personally and professionally. Hi, David. We're so glad we finally got to make this chat happen. Thank you so much for joining us on the Explore This podcast today. Well, it's my pleasure. Uh, thank you for having me. For those of our listeners who are not yet familiar with your background, could you give us a brief introduction of yourself and of Green Monday? Well, I'm a 21-year vegetarian. Um, started back in 2001. So uh, really a long time ago. I don't know how I survived those days. At the beginning, it was just my personal reason, personal choice. But not long after, I found out about the correlation between food and sustainability, or particularly about livestock and carbon emission. And that was when I thought to myself, wait, you know, if climate change and carbon emission is such a global humanity crisis, then you know, we all have to do something about it. If we are having green energy and green transportation, then at some point, green protein, sustainable protein is something that we got to work on too. So about 10 years ago, I founded Green Monday, which is a multifaceted mission-driven venture that tried to shift people's food awareness and also their diet choice. And with our awareness campaign of Green Monday, which is suggesting everyone to go plant-based at least one day a week, and then also our food innovation of Omni Foods, which provide plant-based innovation and protein alternative. We try to provide all the tools, both in terms of awareness and the solutions to empower people to change. So yeah, 10 years later, I mean, Green Monday is celebrating our 10th anniversary this year. And very timely on Earth Day as well, right? April That's 22nd. Right. Yes, we were born on April 22nd. We deliberately chose uh, 422 to be our kickoff day back in 2012. Love it. Very, very apt. And of course, we're going to you know, talk to you more about your journey pioneering this whole plant-based industry and this empire here in Asia. But before we go on to that, we want to rewind the clock a little bit and talk about something that most of our audience actually might not have known, which is the fact that you actually started your very first business not in the plant-based industry, but actually in software in 1999. 
So we want to hear all about that and to get some insight from you on the lessons that you have learned from your first debut into entrepreneurship that you perhaps carried into Green Monday. Yeah, tell us more, David. Well, I made so many mistakes that we would need 10 episodes to cover them. <laughs> well, back in ancient time of 1999, which you know some audience may not even be born at that time, but yes, I was a fresh graduate at that time. And well, I, I'm from a business family. So, I mean, being an entrepreneur is not exactly something foreign, but at that time, being an engineering major and knowing a lot of friends in software and technology, it was only natural. And at that time, of course, was the big technology, the huge wave, including the dot-com era. So we started a software company back then, 1999. Now, timing-wise, it was not good because a year after we founded the business, already we encountered the crash. And it was not a small one. It was the big dot-com bubble that burst. And... You know, from a funding standpoint, there were a lot of investors who we were pitching to and, you know, express interest. But at the end, they all had to just scramble and help their own portfolio companies to survive. And indeed, many of them did not survive. So, yeah, I mean, my first journey of entrepreneurship and very abruptly and very painfully, it lasts for less than two years, despite the fact that we actually had a good product and good momentum, we just really started at the worst time. Now, in terms of my learning, wow, where do I start? Now, first of all, <laughs> well, even though I know this is so obvious, but I mean, entrepreneurship or just life in general, I mean, a lot of times there are many things that are out of your control. And, you know, sometimes we like to say like people are at the right place at the right time. And you can say they may be lucky or you can call it whatever you want. But indeed, in Chinese, it's called which is like, you know, kind of external factors, right time, right place, right people, basically. I mean, try to assemble those circumstances or conditions and make the stars align. But then in terms of being an entrepreneur, I guess I found out that there were many things I did not know. So knowing what I don't know was the biggest learning. I mean, as an entrepreneur, there's so many things, you know, you may not be an expert or a specialist in any particular topic, but you need to know pretty much everything. So yeah, that was, that was quite a journey. And I must say though, I mean, even though at that time it was tough, but many of those experience carry over and either directly or indirectly, it helped benefit my venture today. Well, we couldn't be starting on a greater point than this because then it eventually led you to launch Green Monday, which is essentially a social startup that aims at tackling climate change as well as global food insecurity. And this really started because of your personal convictions when it came to understanding sustainability a little bit more back in the years when it was not even a thing, right? Now we talk about climate change. It's, it's top of mind for a lot of companies and individuals as they live their lives. But back then, it was not something common, not something well-known before. And so how did you then end up launching Green Monday to be what it is today, that global food empire? And also share with us a little bit more about how the idea for the meat-free Green Monday campaign came about. Well, first of all, I mean, um, I'm a little humble when you use the word empire. <laughs> I mean, no, we are still in upstarts. You know, we are far from penetrating into many, many markets. Uh, there's still a lot of education to be done. So by all means, we're still learning, we're still scrambling, and it's an uphill battle to change people's mind and behavior. 
But in terms of where I got the conviction, even before sustainability becomes really a top of mind issue for everyone. Now, I guess in the history of humanity, right, if our back is against the wall, if it threatens our common survival, whatever that is, I, I do think, I mean, I have faith that humanity will find ways to partially or hopefully entirely unite and fight that battle together. Now, in this particular case, ironically, the enemy is not climate change. I mean, who causes climate change, right? It's actually us. We are the enemy, but we also need to be the solution. Getting people to change, I think, is the most difficult thing. But at the same time, if we can mobilize, you know, millions and millions or even hundreds of millions of people to change, then that could be immensely powerful. So first of all, the movement of Green Monday, two simple words, right? Green and Monday. I mean, these are universal words. And then Monday's Tuesday, Wednesday. So once you combine those two words, Green Monday, and you create an action out of it, which is, hey, you know, one day a week. Now, of course, if you choose Friday, Sunday, that's of course your choice. But symbolically, Monday is a new start. Go plant space, start a new green habits, which is something that everyone can do. So Green Monday becomes a unifying force that millions of people can do together. Or, or even if we don't go talk about millions of people, at least a family of five, you know, a group of 20 or 30 or 200 colleagues, co-workers, the whole office can go Green Monday. And so it becomes super powerful uh, and super easy for people to remember because these two words are just so straightforward. And then on the food side, that of course is a much more complicated story because you know it involves R&D, it involves research, and of course it involves funding uh, and resources. So, so yes, I mean, it's a very kind of daunting task, but also a very bold ambition trying to make change happen. And we want to talk to you more and explore that whole journey of change. When you started Green Monday back in 2012, the industry looked very different than what it does right now. Well, there was no industry at that exactly. time. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> very, very nascent or even non-existent in the past, right? And I think when people thought about plant-based food or even vegetarianism, the word that comes to mind is like boring, tasteless. That was the sort of industry that you were facing. But yeah, fast forward 10 years later now to today, this whole industry as, as a whole is booming and we hear about people turning flexitarian, vegan, you know, joining the Green Monday movement more and more. It's becoming very, very common. We can see all these IPOs like with Beyond, with Oatly. It makes it look like, okay, this is the way forward. But at the time when you started it, that was a time where the market had little to no awareness. So how did you move the needle in these nascent stages? Yeah, actually, now I still don't know how it happened. <laughs> well, I guess the line between pioneer and idiot is a very thin line. So for the longest time, we were like idiots that people had no idea what we were doing. When we were investing to do our plant-based protein, meat replacement, I mean, people were like, like David, I mean, what what are you doing? Why are you investing or, you know, putting money in something like this. It makes no sense and there's no precedent. So I guess, you know, the so-called pioneers, people who start something before it becomes popular or common, you can say that we see things 
before they actually unfold. But in my case, again, it goes back to the point I said earlier. If you look at transportation, electric vehicles, EV or green transportation, that movement was already happening. And then green energy. So whether that is solar panel, wind and others. And then when you look at food, if livestock actually generates more carbon emission than all transportation combined. So basically, if we want to hopefully reduce the damage of climate change, we have to fix the food issue. And the food issue is more than just carbon emission. It's also water footprint. It's also land use. It's also about people's health, food security, and population growth. So actually, food is at the nexus of like 16 different sustainability crises, or maybe even 160 different crises. That's where my conviction came from is problem needs to be addressed. And you got to give people solution. You cannot just tell people don't eat meat. It's kind of like seeing the problem before it becomes commonly known. But I don't want to really make it sound like I'm some visionary or anything because United Nations published those reports like 15, 16 years ago. If anyone pay attention to those reports, they would have done something. Those information and research were all there. It's just that people chose to ignore them. You mentioned that you can't just fear monger and tell people that you can't eat meat, you know, because this causes carbon emission and this causes the impact to our planet. But what do you think was the strategy that Green Monday implemented that successfully persuaded or influenced people to change their behavior even just by one day in a week? What was that secret sauce, you would say? Well, it is actually a combination. So, I mean, first of all, it's a cultural or mind shift standpoint. The term Green Monday, as I mentioned, it empowers a shift of mindsets, which is, hey, you know, one day a week, let's take action. Now, there's something different between, let's say, like previously, you know, when we talk about green or sustainability, the three words that come to mind are reduce, reuse, recycle, or the three R's, right? Now, those three words, of course, are valid and true, but what is missing is a concrete action. So reduce. I mean, of course, reduce is right. I mean, we should not use things that we don't need, but it's not a concrete action. If you have a company of 100 people or or 1,000 people, you cannot just say, oh, you know, tomorrow let's arrange a, a company activity. And tomorrow we will reduce, you know, reduce what, where, how, you know, it's a concept, but it's not concrete. I think one of the secret recipes of Green Monday, actually it's not secret at all because it's, you know, it's, it's a public name that we try to spread every single day. So actually there's nothing secret about it, but it's that it's a very precise and very concrete action that we want people to take. And it's also a name that. I hope, you know, everyone, once they hear it, they can remember it. I think it's universal. So from that standpoint is you can say that's one of the factors that contribute to the change. And then two is innovation. I mean, at the end, I think sustainability and innovation must go hand in hand. Sustainability is not a charity. So the beneficiary is not someone out there. The beneficiary technically is all of us. You know, we are the problem. We need to be the solution. So sustainability must go with innovation. So I guess the other pillar of so-called recipe to try to drive that impact is 
we have been innovating both in terms of food products, food experience, partnerships, etc. So it's, it's a combination. And I have to say that one of the partnerships that really stood out to me, or, or I'd say the one that really compelled me, was your Omnipod collaboration with McDonald's. Because I've always loved McDonald's breakfast. So one day I walked in there and I saw that they actually had the luncheon meat option, Omnipod. And I was compelled to try and honestly had no expectations whatsoever. But when I had it, I thought to myself, oh my goodness, I couldn't even tell that it wasn't actual like luncheon meat. So that was something that really blew my mind. Well, I'm very happy to hear. Uh, please go more often. <laughs> um, and because every time when you make a purchase, right, or make an order, it, it is a vote. We are telling these partners that the demand is real. I mean, that this is not just, you know, some hype or a fad that people like David Young or people who are from this space kind of just came up from nowhere. It really is a mega trend that we need to take. So, well, thank you for the support. And I'm glad you enjoyed it. Now, now that you say it, you know, you make me hungry. That may be my <laughs> Well, I can't wait to try it myself. Janice told me about how delicious Omnipoc is. And well, I don't know if it will ever reach the shores of Malaysia in, in this shape and form. But otherwise, I would love to see how you could also introduce this to such a giant like McDonald's, right? See what kind of collaborations that you could do in the McDonald's in Malaysia. Maybe not in the form of the luncheon meat, but something else. We are indeed partnering with many major, major global players. So Starbucks, Ikea, in Hong Kong, you know, multiple of the biggest fast food chain like Cafe de Corel, Fairwood. And then globally in the UK, we recently launched our Omni fish. So the fish fillet in Wagamama, which of course is nice. one of the most well-known chains in the UK. And we launched the vegan fish and chips, which, you know, really blew people's mind. And I mean, we're talking about fish and chips country. So to impress them, of course, it's not easy, but I think we more than accomplished that. So yeah, truly, I mean, it has been a very humbling journey. And, you know, we are just very thrilled and very humble that both Omni, the products, and also Green Monday, the movement, truly has really achieved some change and convinced people to try a new lifestyle. And food is something that is very emotional for many as well, especially, I mean, talking about here in Hong Kong, right? Things like lang chun meat or even gao ji, you know, dumplings, siu mai, all of these things are something that I think the people of the particular country would hold very closely um, to their hearts. Having gone through ups and downs and many challenges, what has been your biggest learning or realization in your journey of catalyzing that shift or disruption in the local food culture and consumers' eating habits? I mean, you should stop talking about all this food because... <laughs> <laughs> it's making all of us hungry right now. <laughs> you know, I'll tell you. So on my recent trip, I went to the UK and the US and then on my way back to Hong Kong, I actually made a stop in Singapore. Now, because I had too many salads or, you know, sandwiches in the US, just too many. The moment when I landed in Singapore, it happens that there's a Ding Tai Fung next to where I stay. And then immediately I went up to Ding Tai Fung and had a stir-fried vegetables and then a vegetarian dumpling and just a bowl of noodles. I mean, that was my like comfort food. Dumplings, noodles, 
and then stir fry vegetables, green veggies. And then the next morning, because of jet lag, I was up super early. So I had time to just, I don't know, like I got off my room at like six or something like that. And then I was just kind of just walking around the neighborhood. And then and all of a sudden I saw this place with channel fun, like rice roll. And then I walk in and then, wow. So anyway, I mean, even that little story about Ding Tai Fung or Cheng Fan, rice roll, is about localization or, or globalization. We all know, right? Even pizza. I mean, the ones that you eat in New York, it's not the same as the one you eat in Chicago and clearly not the same as the one you eat in Italy. So uh, Bao, I mean... When we brought our Omni meat bun to Beijing, to like the northern part of China, they actually would like almost laugh at us and they say, this is not authentic because the northern China bun is not the same as the southern China bun. So indeed, from a food and flavor and palate standpoint, there is so much to learn. And it's almost like endless learning from one place to another, one country to another. Even if it's still called dandan noodles, you cannot expect the recipe uh, to be identical. So no doubt, I mean, just a lot of learning. Food is one thing that unites the whole world. But at the same time, we cannot underestimate either the subtlety or sometimes even the drastic change in terms of flavor profile for people. So that's an endless learning journey. So again, even for a vegetarian, I mean, yes, of course I can eat salad, but given that I'm an Asian person, I mean, I still enjoy my noodles and my dumplings very much. Actually, I, I cannot live without them to be excited. <laughs> Thank you so much for sharing that, especially from a more personal and very recent experience tying into your travels as well. So David, we're extremely curious, right? Because as we have alluded to earlier, many people now, close friends that we all know of, they have embraced a plant-based diet. But at the end of the day, let's be real, there are still a whole demographic of people who are very much on the fence or in fact cynical about a plant-based diet's benefit. I'm curious to know which demographic would you say that you've come to know about is the most resistant? Is it the older generation? And I'm drawing from a very simple example, right? I think about my parents and whether sustainability is something that is in their vocabulary among parents or friends and things like that. And I don't know if that's something that they that they know so much or it's concerned about. So what would you say is the demographic that is most resistant to this? Now, first of all, just in general, people who are, you know, slightly older, I mean, they have formed their habits for a longer time, right? So it is more difficult for them to change. Now, I, I, I must admit, even I, at my age, I'm not exactly old. But I mean, I also have become a creature of habit. So first of all, of course, in general, young people are much more receptive to change. And sustainability is also something that they care more because, um, you know, just practically they will be, you know, around longer <laughs> and they will need to deal with the consequence of all these sustainability crises. So from that standpoint, it is very normal that young people are more concerned and they also are the ones who push this movement of sustainability. But then when we talk about food, the resistance is not just a matter of age, 
or culture. I think the resistance is from a simple fact that we all like to enjoy food, right? Food is emotional. Food is social. So it's more than just filling our stomach. It's about the atmosphere. It's about where you bring, you know, or in my case, where I bring my wife. It's much more than the food. It's about the whole package, the whole experience. So the resistance is about it must be something that tastes good. It must meet people where they are in terms of their expectation and standard. You cannot ask people to sacrifice. No matter how noble the cause is, they may do it once or twice. But if you want the change itself to be sustainable, if you want sustainability to be sustainable, it better be something good. It better not be a sacrifice. So, yeah, I mean, I think for food, if we overcome that, then the resistance will come down. Absolutely. So for some of our listeners or even ourselves who might want to know your pitch as to why we should embrace a plant-based diet, what do you have to say? First and foremost, it's good for you. I mean, before we even talk about saving the planet or you know, solving climate change, nowadays, most people, their health concerns are high cholesterol, obesity, getting heart disease or even cancer at a very young age. And that come from our diets and, and lifestyle. I mean, there are so many documentaries that explain the problem with food nowadays. The meats we eat or the dairy we consume is not the same dairy and meats it was 50, 30 years ago. Nowadays, almost every step of the food production process, so many of them, you know, loaded with chemicals, antibiotics, hormones. And these are clearly all bad to our health. Not that vegetables have no issue at all. Not that, I mean, a lot of people would say, you know, alternative protein is still processed, which is true. But now different brands have different nutrition profiles, so I cannot speak for all of them. But, you know, I can speak for Omni, and Omni has significantly better nutrition profile. Low fats, zero cholesterol, and to the people concerned about calories, also low calorie. But at the same time, it's high protein, high calcium, high iron, high fiber. So all the things you need, we provide. Actually, it's even more than real meat. But all the things you don't want, you know, we are eliminating or reducing. So that's in terms of nutrition proposition is just it's very significant. So, so yes, I mean, my pitch to them is actually why not eat healthy and eat tasty at the same time? And along the way, if you can contribute to the planet, if you can contribute to saving animals, it's just win, 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 win. So that would be my pitch. So hashtag why not, right? Almost. Yeah, why not? I mean, <laughs> and also just don't underestimate the power of baby steps. I mean, you don't need to be a vegan tomorrow. Just go green one day or one meal, you know, on a routine basis, kind of like exercise, right? I mean... You don't have to run a full marathon, but if you exercise every day, every other day, that's what it takes. I mean, that's good for you. It's the same concept. So what would you say is one of the biggest myths that people of, or, or something that people often get wrong about a plant-based diet or lifestyle? It used to be that people think you won't get enough protein or people who eat plant-based must be weak, must be pale, must be fragile. <laughs> And sometimes when they see me, you know, and I tell them that I'm a 21 year vegetarian 
And, you know, they're like, no way. <laughs> because I'm not like exactly skinny. I'm not exactly pale. So it doesn't fit the profile of what people think, you know, a, you know, vegetarian or vegan would look like. But indeed, that's one of the biggest myths is you don't get enough nutrition. Now, today, there are too many plant-based food innovation, you know, from drinks to snacks to plant-based meats, you name them. One of the strongest animals, of course, is cow. One of the fastest or faster horses, right? What do they eat? I mean, they all eat plants. So strength and agility, it, it is proven that plants have enough protein. So uh, it is a complete myth that we must get calcium from dairy milk and we must get protein from animal meat. That's simply not true. So we're going to switch gears now, David, and kind of talk to you more about you know the business side of things and understand also about your, the financing element of such a nature of your industry. So in 2020, Green Monday announced that you have raised 70 million US dollars in financing. And this was particularly monumental because it was the largest round of its kind in Asia. And you had investors, including um, filmmaker James Cameron and British photographer Mary McCarthy. So that was a very, very successful round, of course. But one thing we're really curious about are sort of the more unseen, challenging elements behind that led to the success of your financing. What were some of the challenges that you faced in the lead up to your, fin your very successful financing round? Well, again, that would take 10 episodes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to start somewhere, David. Yeah, I mean, I, I would need to be on your show every week. Um, well, there are just too many challenges. I mean, honestly, and, and it's, it's something that is an ongoing uphill battle. Fixing or trying to be a force in the food system is difficult. Now, first and foremost, I got to say the biggest challenge today and the last two years is COVID. I mean, food requires production, requires, um, you know, moving from one country to another. So moving products around the world in during COVID time is ridiculously difficult. And then, of course, you know, workers get sick, staff get sick. And in Hong Kong, even now, 2022, you know, we experience arguably the biggest crisis the city has ever seen when, you know, COVID or particularly Omicron swept through the whole city. So now that may not sound like what does that have to do with funding or financing, but it really means that in terms of your business planning, in terms of many of the things that, you know, you thought that's one thing is your plan, but on the other thing, that's how reality unfold. Um, I think if anything, the last two years taught us a lot of things, which is not just to expect the unexpected, but really, I mean, many, many things can go wrong, even though you try to put in the best plan. So from that standpoint, you know, finding the mission aligned investors um, truly believe in the vision long term. That is not easy. I mean, some people, I mean, particularly I think Asian investors, I mean, they may not be as long term, relatively speaking, as some of the other investors. And I think in Asia in particular, because investors are so number driven, they look at, you know, not just plan based, it's just in general, I mean, more concerned about relatively shorter term return. So the investment horizon and thesis are a little bit different. So these are all the things that as 
relatively early stage or some of the earlier companies, we're not just changing people's habits. We're also changing a little bit of the business world and the investment dynamics. And on, on that note, you know, talking about investors and also talking about the market entrance, right? In recent years, we have seen even new players like Tyndall come in. Do you think that the market as it is, do you see it being quite saturated already? Or do you think that there is further room for new entrants to come in? And what does it take to distinguish themselves and to really sustain the long game? Well, um, that's another interesting part of not just our sector, but when you have a new trend emerging, obviously there will be new companies and obviously there are investors who would back those companies because this is a mega trend. So from that standpoint, it is very exciting. And food is a very big industry. And food is also relatively fragmented. There are plenty of companies who can be winners. It's not a one or two or three companies that winners take all. So that's number one. But with that said, there is also a number of companies that the market can helpfully support. I mean, you're not going to have a hundred companies doing plant-based burgers or 200 companies doing plant-based nuggets, you know, both in terms of quality, innovation, branding, market penetration, all of that. I mean, it will take a combination of all of the above to be successful. Now, obviously, first mover has some advantage. Um, in our case, we are very fortunate that on one hand, you know, we started in Asia uh, very early. And so a lot of people know about Omni, know about Green Monday. But on the other hand, we are also entering the Western markets. So the North American market, the European markets, and, you know, we have our positioning in those markets as well. So, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it varies by company. Obviously, I cannot comment on each company, but in general, it's very exciting time. Well, David, we've enjoyed our conversation with you and, you know, just wanted to also recognize that we've got so many listeners of the Explore This podcast that are budding entrepreneurs that are wanting to tickle their entrepreneurship, um, I would say, spirit because, you know, they hear of so many incredibly inspiring um, businessmen like yourself. But obviously, it came with a lot, a lot of challenges and all the previous failures that you've talked about. And so you've said it before that failure is a requirement for any business or anyone. And in fact, earlier in the episode, I remember you said that there's a very fine line between being called a pioneer and an idiot. So we want to know, how has a failure or a challenge set you up for later success? Share with us a story about that. And also tell us about the last time when you took a risk that did not pay off. We're interested to hear both stories. It was maybe yesterday (laughs) 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 or or last week. Every month, it seems like I'm making certain decisions that doesn't pan out the way I thought. I think as entrepreneurs, especially in the volatile world today, I mean, the world is changing at such absurd pace. And then COVID and then all these geopolitical uncertainties. So just need to be super nimble. Uh, No one is not going to fail. Let's be honest. I think it's all about reacting and pivoting. And hopefully those failures are not fatal. I mean, you don't die from those failures. You know, when you enter a new market, you tend to think that, hey, with what works in, you know, country A or market A, hopefully with some minor changes, you can uh, apply that to market B or country B. And indeed, that's not 
same. Now, as simple as even Hong Kong and Singapore, right? I mean, a lot of people usually kind of connect the two and think that, you know, they are similar enough that, you know, Singapore, if it works, then, you know, it can work in Hong Kong or vice versa. But that is not true either. A lot of work or a lot more preparation needs to go in before you can really say, hey, we can actually, you know, win that market. So in terms of taking risk, well, I mean, in a, in a startup, basically every day you're taking risk because you are in uncharted territories. So, you know, learning and experimenting every day with food in particular. I mean, just how to change recipes, how to change taste profile, texture, everything just to get, get it right for that market. And so we want to ask you if you have any parting advice for our listeners out there who want to be, you know, who are aspiring entrepreneurs. Is there a single piece of advice that you would go back and tell your, you know, 10 year ago self to, to do and to not make that mistake? If that was one piece of advice, like what would that be? Don't act on that impulse to become an entrepreneur. <laughs> I always like to tell people that if they want to be an entrepreneur, first, Let's join a very entrepreneurial company, work in that environment and learn from it. That actually is my biggest piece of advice. You don't have to be the entrepreneur or the founder immediately. Now, of course, there are many people who indeed try it and succeed, but I think, you know, there are many studies or statistics out there that shows that Indeed, you know, 99% or whatever that percent is that most people, when they want to start a business, sadly, it ends up in failure. So that's because it goes back to the point I mentioned earlier is people don't know what they don't know. You know, startup entrepreneurs, do you truly know what you don't know or what it takes to be a well-rounded entrepreneur? And the best way to learn what it takes is to be in an entrepreneurial environment. Join a startup, join a relatively, or jo even in a corporate, join a new division within that corporate. So you may still enjoy a little bit of the leeway or the safety because you're not completely taking that risk yourself, but you are immersing yourself in that environment. I would say that's my best advice. So. Eventually, you know, I don't know if that's, you know, three years, five years, eight years later, but when you feel like hopefully you're more equipped, now you will never be completely equipped. There's no such thing called, you know, entrepreneurial graduation. By default, entrepreneurs are problem solvers, right? That's what we do. We solve problems. We need to be good at solving problems, which means there are always new problems. Every day, the world is changing. So. But yes, at least try to immerse yourself in that environment and hopefully be more mentally prepared. And, and also from a skill set standpoint, be more well-trained and well-prepared. David, we wanted to thank you for the time that you took to share with us about the incredible, I would say, tumultuous journey, bringing us through the very humble beginnings of Green Monday to where it is today. And yes, understandably, still growing. Still encountering a lot of startup-ish problems or issues, but at the same time, it's definitely a business that we see it's thriving and most importantly, it's actually making a di difference. And so we're curious to know, looking ahead, what else is on the horizon for you and Green Monday? You talk about entrepreneurs being 
problem solvers. What is something else that you're hoping to solve? Wow. I mean, with Omni, you know, our big plan, which is already ongoing, is for it to become global, to bring a good product and a new concept from concept stage, product development, R&D stage to pilot thing to now penetrating the market to becoming global. That is not easy. So by all means, I think making Omni global, making Omni foods omnipresent. That's my big project. Love it. I mean, you already bought, you know, plant-based fish to the UK. So I am sure, you know, the sky is the limit for you. The sky and the ocean is the limit for you, David. <laughs> I know. So either go up, go down, go, go south. I think that, again, you know, that's the thrill of the entrepreneur journey. And that's also the nerve-wracking part, right? Is, you know, how we're supposed to tackle so many problems at the same time. I do think some people have that entrepreneur DNA. It, it is something. It's something in the DNA that drives us and, you know, kind of motivate us and also will us into taking certain risks that other people think is just, I mean, crazy. So, yeah, I mean, that's what I'm, what my team and I are working on every day. The latest is to make Omni globally omnipresent. And we're super excited to see that happen. So David, as we're wrapping up now, one final question that we like to ask our guest at the end of every episode, what is the one thing you recently explored that surprised you? Okay, this is super recent. Um, and that is my round-the-world trip. <laughs> now, I've never done before COVID, so BC, before COVID, you don't travel for 50 days nonstop. And around the world, right? So indeed, one of my recent, I don't know, exploration, that's out of necessity. It's not by choice. And then coming back to Hong Kong requires quarantine. So I just need to maximize my trip. So I went to UK, US, and then multiple cities in the U US, and then Singapore, Thailand before I come back. So it has been a almost, and, and by the way, I have my quarantine. So it's a f almost 50-day round-the-world trip. And what I learned is that it's not fun. But I'm extremely thankful that I did not catch COVID during the trip. And you are one day away from leaving. Yes, I'm one day away, yes. Thanks so, to the answer of your family. Yes, so on the eve of me returning home home, well, thank you for spending time. Thank you for giving me this chance because you are keeping me occupied during my quarantine days. <laughs> and we're very privileged to do so. We're excited that tomorrow you get the chance to have actual... Hong Kong style Cheong Fun. So how about that for a welcome home, right? I know. And Hong Kong style Kongji too. Yeah. I can only imagine the excitement you'll have when you first have that again. So, you know, David, thank you so much again for also taking the time to spend with us. So we've learned so much in your journey of you pioneering this plant-based industry here in Asia. And we're very positive that this is a movement that will soon catch on, hopefully globally, and that Omni will grow to become omnipresent. And we're looking forward to see that happen for yourself and for Green Monday. So thank you so much for that. Thank you. If you've stuck around to the end of this episode, we want to say thank you for exploring with us. And if you don't already, please follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts, leave us a rating and review, and most importantly, share this episode with your friends. We'd love to hear from you, so you can also connect with us on Instagram using the Instagram handle Explore This Podcast. A-C-T-S-P-L-O-R-E This Podcast.
New episodes for Explore This drops every Monday at 8pm. See you then!